where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I am going to be joined in just a minute by my usual co-host, John Kiriakou, who is in Saudi Arabia. Uh, But you've got just me for a couple of minutes. We are going to be talking to John, as I said, in some detail about Joe Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia. He left Israel for Jeddah today, but not before meeting with the president of the Palestinian Authority. So we will also ask uh, what he was able to say to Mahmoud Abbas and whether really Mahmoud Abbas is a is a reliable interlocutor for uh, Palestinians in general. We are going to ask what we should expect from his meeting with the Gulf Cooperation Council and the Saudi Crown Prince. We'll talk about how Iran is responding to the possibility of a Middle East air defense alliance and what Tehran makes of Washington's statements that it really, really very seriously wants to rejoin a nuclear deal. We will talk about the huge report into Uber that has been facilitated by a massive data leak by a former lobbyist and ask why Emmanuel Macron, for example, was so eager for his country to be a comfortable home for such a crummy company. We are also going to talk about Turkey, drones and destabilization. There is a whole lot of scrutiny at the moment into Turkey's drone program and where it its weapons go. And so we will ask why that is. I also was just for a minute trying to figure out. So there's this convoy of school buses, a mile-long procession of school buses that are headed to Senator Ted Cruz's home. They left yesterday. Um, It is the rollout of the Yellow Bus Project. Uh, This is the first stop for the NRA Children's Museum which is coordinated uh, by Change the Ref, which is a nonprofit that spotlights mass shooting awareness. Um, But there are going to be 4,368 empty seats on the bus to represent the number of children killed. This is the first, the story in my San Antonio says that number represents the children killed by gun violence in just the last two years. I think that's just the number of children killed by gun violence in 2020. Uh, which is just wild to contemplate, which led me to a story from back in May uh, that noted that guns had become the leading cause of death for American kids, uh, for kids one and older. That was for the first time in 2020, the most recent year for which CDC data is available. None of that is breaking news, but that did catch my eye just as I was uh, starting the show here. Uh, So yeah, just imagine imagine what people in other countries think as a... um, you know, a, a journalist tries to figure out were 4,300 and some kids killed by gun violence in one year or was that two years? What an astronomical figure. Um, I also want to note that there's been a little bit of a twist in the Brittany Griner case. Her lawyers were in court again today. So yesterday we saw her basketball team come and offer, you know, basically act as character witnesses, talking about her contributions to to the team and to the sport. Uh, Today, her lawyers are saying that she was prescribed medical cannabis in the United States to treat a chronic injury. Uh, And so she had accidentally traveled with these vape cartridges that were actually medically prescribed to her. Um, You know, I'm not sure what we should make of this. If you asked me to guess, I would say under normal circumstances, this would be the kind of stuff that would allow the court to just say, "Okay, you know, yeah, you broke the law, but you're you know, you're a public figure. We appreciate what you do for our uh, our basketball program here. And we can see that this is prescribed to you. And so, okay, well, you know, we'll, we'll give you a slap on the wrist or nothing at all. And this will all be wrapped up. 
but we're not in normal times right now. And so I'm not sure how far this is going to go to uh, to get Brittany Griner out of the Russian court system. But I I hope it does. I mean, I, I hope that's what happens. Uh, we also have what has got to be pretty bad news for the Biden administration. Um, if you accept as the premise that Joe Biden really wants to keep the promises he made on the campaign trail to transform this country's physical and social infrastructure and to begin to actually implement, you know, long view projects on climate change. If that was what they wanted to do from the first place. Uh, it is a blow that West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin, uh, you know, professional Democratic heel, is apparently refusing to countenance more climate spending or tax hikes in these, this uh, Build Back Better uh, consolation prize bill that is currently being hammered out after he, of course, helped tank the first one. Uh, we are going to talk more uh, with John about this later if we have time. Uh, but, you know, raises the question of what what is the point of Joe Manchin as a Democrat if he is going to stand in the way of all of your your most high profile desires, be it, you know, abortion, uh, be it these infrastructure bills? Uh, and of course, this is also just going to make Joe Biden look worse. I know that we have uh, John Kiriakou on the line, so I think we might as well just dive into this conversation about what's going on in Saudi Arabia. Uh, we're joined now by John Kiriakou, who is, of course, my co-host and also a Sputnik News analyst. How you doing, John? Hey, doing pretty well, thanks. It's been a busy day today. Oh, yeah? So what's going on? Wow. A lot's going on. Um, I don't even really know where to start. You know, I've, I've been a part of two presidential visits over the course of my career, mm -hmm. one with George H.W. Bush in uh, Bahrain and one with Bill Clinton in, uh, in Athens. And when a president comes to town, everybody who works at the embassy or the consulate uh, drops what they're doing and everybody participates. The, the police shut the city down. Uh, it, it's the biggest possible thing that can happen during the course of, of a, you know, of a year mm -hmm. of a normal, of a normal work year in diplomacy mm -hmm. here in Jeddah, you would never know that anything was going on. There's uh... almost nothing on TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everybody's out doing their business. Uh, the hotel that I'm in is on a main street. It's it's just business as usual. People are out and about driving around. I did see two helicopters today, and that was it. Mm -hmm. uh, but there's no indication that the president of the United States is in Jeddah today. There are no flags flying, whether they're Saudi or American. Uh, I, I watched the, the Saudi the Emirati and the Egyptian news today. And while, of course, they mentioned the fact that Biden was going to be here today, uh, the story lasted for five minutes and then they just went on to other news. It's really like it's no big deal. Hmm. So Biden arrived here about two and a half hours ago. He was met at the airport by the head of Saudi protocol, which is kind of offensive to tell you the truth. Right. This is Jim something this is something I was curious about because there had been speculation as to who who was going to meet Joe Biden on the on the tarmac. And it does, you know, it, it does convey uh you know it, it conveys a certain attitude about the person who you're greeting, right? Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh big time. I mean by protocol, the king should uh should have met him. Mm -hmm. But the king's 86 years old, he's infirm, he doesn't do things like this. He's just not in good enough health to, you know, stand out in the 109 degree heat today 
and uh, and wait for Biden to come off the plane. Mm-hmm. So that would normally fall to the crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Uh-huh. But the the president has called the crown prince a pariah and wasn't going to shake his hand and wasn't going to meet with him. And I'd, I'd like to get into all of that in a minute. And so he was met only by the Saudi director of protocol and a translator. And that was it. Wow. And then off to the side, you could see the U.S. ambassador, the consul general, the, the whole crew of, of Americans who were here in town. And then along with Biden, there was um, – there was uh, the national security advisor. But otherwise, it was a very sedate arrival. Now, one thing that was a very big deal about the, the arrival was that Air Force One flew directly from Israel to Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. That has never, ever happened before. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, they have to transit somewhere, whether it's Cyprus or usually it's Cyprus. Mm-hmm. It could be Cairo. But this was a direct flight. And just hours before Biden left Israel, the Saudi government issued a, a statement saying that um, in the interest of, of peace, that they would allow direct flights from Israel to Saudi Arabia, and the Israelis were allowing direct flights from Saudi Arabia to Israel. So now El Al, the national airline of Israel, can land in Saudi Arabia, and Saudia is going to be landing in Israel the Palestinians have to be apoplectic about this, mm-hmm. but the Saudis are, are, you know, announcing it like it's a very big deal. This, How big a deal do you think it is, right? Joe Biden is also calling it a breakthrough, uh, but the media treatment it's getting is a, a small step. So it's symbolic. Mm-hmm. It's symbolic. It doesn't it doesn't bring peace between Israel and Palestine any closer. No, it doesn't help the Palestinians in any way. It certainly helps the Israelis because it fur- further legitimizes them in the region. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a it's not a regional defense pact. It's not diplomatic relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia. It's a symbolic step. Mm-hmm. But symbolism is really a kind of what's at play here, right? You know, because if you you know if if you take it as true that uh, there has actually been a lot of behind the scenes uh, talking, trading, and what have you between Israel and Arab states for a very long time, then even though this is just symbolic, there is you know. It, it, it does seem to be to be significant that you are taking these things sort of out of the back rooms and into the public. That's right. You know, a lot has changed over the last 20 or 25 years, Michelle. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was serving in the Middle East, uh, one of my jobs was to um, to lobby the host governments, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait and Bahrain, to drop what were called the secondary and tertiary, tertiary uh, boycotts of Israel. So not only did the Arab countries, all the Arab countries, boycott goods and services from Israel, but they boycotted companies that did business with companies that uh, had business in Israel. And then the tertiary was they boycotted companies that did business with companies that did business with companies mm-hmm. that had business in Israel. Mm-hmm. It was ridiculous. Well, all of that is is gone. It's all fallen by the wayside. Now, Israel has diplomatic relations with, what, a half a dozen Arab states, uh, Morocco, Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Sudan, and uh, they're looking to expand that. The The sad truth of, of this diplomatic situation is that most of the Arab countries 
and especially most of the wealthy Arab countries, have decided that they're just not going to do anything to help the Palestinians. Yeah. And so if they think that they can make money by opening relations with Israel, then they're going to open relations with Israel. I mean, I feel like this is probably uh, exemplified by the reports that Palestinian Authority leader Mahmoud Abbas was trying to get a meeting uh, in with the Saudi right. king ahead of Biden's stop there, but he was granted just a short phone call. Um, That's I wonder, right. He I, asked for weeks in advance mm-hmm. to, to come to Saudi Arabia for a meeting, and they, they just refused to allow him. Yeah. Can I ask you how significant Saudi support for Palestine uh, has ever really been? Because just I'm not an expert, right? But just off the top of my head, I seem to recall it's Qatar who has made the most, uh, yeah. you know, significant financial support to Gaza, uh, at least in particular. Uh, so I'm just curious, you know, what uh, of the Gulf states, yeah. right? Who who is actually still got some backbone when it comes to supporting Palestinians? You remember well. Uh, it's really just gutter. Mm-hmm. And this is all a result of the 1990-1991 Gulf War when Yasser Arafat decided to, to side with Saddam Hussein instead of with Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. They made a policy decision back then that they were going to expel all Palestinians from the Gulf, which they did briefly, mm-hmm. uh, but they were going to cut off aid to the PLO. And here we are, you know, what is it now, 30 years later, 31 years later, Mm -hmm. and those relations have never um, gone back to to normal. Mm -hmm. It's only gutter, and not just gutter, but gutter under the current and the last emir, Mm -hmm. not under uh, Sheikh Khalifa al-Thani, who was the emir in 1991, who has has financed, for example, hospitals in Gaza and the West Bank or schools. Uh, so, yeah, the, the Saudis turned their backs on the Palestinians a long time ago, as did most of the other Gulf states. Yeah. And this, we're going to talk with uh, Wyatt uh, after I talk to you, John, about, you know, the wrap up of uh, Joe Biden's trip to Israel and to the Palestinian territories. But, man, just just honestly, s- some really insulting rhetoric coming out of, of his mouth, I think, with regard to Palestinians and sort of uh, really shallow efforts to express basically, I feel your pain. It's it's uh, it's a little bit difficult to watch sometimes. Um, Awful. And, you know, the Palestinians are all saying how disappointed they are in this in this trip that $100 billion for Palestinian hospitals is great, and they can use it, and they'll take it. But it doesn't do anything to advance the peace process. There are a couple of things that Joe Biden could have done. I know this isn't supposed to be my bailiwick, but I feel kind of strongly about it. Biden could have announced the reopening of the PLO liaison office in Washington, mm-hmm. which was closed by Donald Trump. He did not do that. Mm-hmm. And another thing is he could have announced the reopening to Palestinians of the U.S. consulate in Jerusalem, mm-hmm. which which is supposed to eventually someday become the U.S. embassy in Palestine. Mm-hmm. And he didn't do that either. Mm-hmm. So no, very disappointed. No, nothing like not even. And those were two those were uh, two decisions that were made during the Trump administration. So it's he's not there's not even an appetite to go back to the sort of pre Trump status quo. Right. It is. uh, It is disappointing. You know, and people are asking the same questions without getting too far afield uh, about why we didn't just rejoin the JCPOA. Mm -hmm. Why we didn't just reopen our embassy in Havana. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are things that were all negotiated during the the Obama-Biden administration and were ended by Trump. 
Mm-hmm. And we could have fixed it over the last year and a half. And we haven't. They seem to be an administration that is really politically scared. Although, I mean, I say that. And yet it was Joe Biden, I think, who really insisted on on actually withdrawing from Afghanistan, which I think was uh, uh, took some political bravery. Right. And so you have this like weird yeah. anomalous decision hanging out there uh, with an administration that's really uh, seems to be either either that just totally lied on the campaign trail about anything that they intended or is just really scared uh, to to make a wrong step. Right. And is just going to, you know, uh, play it as it lays instead of considering that they could kind of reset this this playing field. But, yeah, John, wait, let's not go too far afield because we do have to talk about Saudi Arabia and this visit. Uh, You mentioned, you know, handshake politics and protocol. The Hill today has a report on efforts by Democratic senators uh, to pressure Biden to either not meet with MBS personally or to raise the issue of Jamal Khashoggi's murder and other human rights abuses when he does meet with him bilaterally. It uh, mentions that uh, Jamal Khashoggi's widow said that she expected Biden to to raise her husband's murder. Uh, how likely do you think any of that is? Why do we have Democrats acting like there's any chance Biden is going to not meet with MBS on this trip? I'm so glad that you raised that because Biden walked into a meeting with MBS about 40 minutes ago. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I followed this very closely. In June, Biden said that he would not meet with MBS. Period. Mm-hmm. He would not meet with him. A week ago, he said, well, he likely would meet with him, but it wouldn't be a private meeting. It would be Biden meeting with King Salman and MBS would be in the room as he always is Mm -hmm. in meetings with his father. Mm -hmm. Then today, Biden said that he would meet with MBS and wouldn't confirm whether or not he would even raise the issue of Jamal Khashoggi's murder. Mm -hmm. And uh, then the question was, well, if he's going to meet with MBS, are they going to shake hands? Right. (laughs) And they got around that by uh, announcing yesterday from the White House that Biden wasn't going to shake hands with anybody because of COVID. He was only going to do fist bumps. That was nonsensical because mm-hmm. he not only shook hands with all the Israelis, he hugged them. Yeah. He did fist bumps with the Palestinians. And then today he shook hands with the head of protocol and with the translator and then did a fist bump with MBS. I mean, so this just the twilight zone over here. None of this makes sense. Meet with Biden. No, the vast majority. Got interrupted there by a clip. <laughs> very strange. Yeah, it is. It is very strange. You know, it doesn't. It, and you just think like, who cares, man? You're over there. You've made the meeting. You've flown out there. You've been insulted on the tarmac, right? Uh, by by the uh, the crew that's come to greet you. Like, who cares if you press palms or you press fingers? Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And plus, for heaven's sake, you are the president of the United States. You're the most powerful and most important person in the world. Mm-hmm. Take charge of the meeting. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Stand up for what you believe in. If if MBS is a pariah and a murderer, then no, you do not shake hands with him. I mean, you do not come hand uh, hat in hand to ask for oil. Let me ask. I mean, we've been saying like who who this is sort of symbolic. He's coming the the with the substance of the meeting is what matters. But, you know, I do wonder if 
uh, if if Joe Biden, if the White House has decided it is it, it is in our interest, we actually we have to go and do this as galling as it is. We will swallow up our pride. We will go there. We will sort of take a little bit of uh, of lip, so to speak. Right. From, from the Saudis, uh, if we can get what we want. But if we don't or if there, well, one, I guess I have two two questions here. One, if we don't get what we want. Does this actually trigger a, a a true overhaul of our relationship with Saudi Arabia? And also, even if we do, is there you know is there a line? Is there a way that the the, the Saudis could actually go too far, be too insulting, and and force the same kind of overhaul uh, as we might see if they actually just said flat out, no, we're not putting any more oil on the market? Yeah, that's that's really a great question. Um, if, if Joe Biden comes out of this with with nothing. Then we are going to have to reassess our our relationship with the Saudis. Mm-hmm. I was telling Jamal uh, Thomas earlier this morning. We've always said, and the Saudis have always said that we've got this special relationship, and we've had a special relationship since the creation of Saudi Arabia in the early 1930s. Mm-hmm. Uh, this relationship between King Abdulaziz, who's known as Ibn Saud, the father of of, of Saud, mm-hmm. um, to uh, to Franklin Roosevelt. But the truth is there really hasn't been a special relationship. It's very simple that we sell them weapons and they sell us oil. That's mm-hmm. the basis of the relationship. We don't really like each other. Like our people don't like each other. We're not particularly close in any way. Mm-hmm. It's strictly business. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's that's gone for almost a century. Well, here we've got a young, impetuous, murderous uh, crown prince whose father is infirm and by many reports demented and is not able to run the country. We know that MBS runs the day-to-day operations of the country. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was talking to an Al Jazeera journalist this morning at the, um, at the press gathering, and he said something that was absolutely fascinating to me. He said, in Biden's meeting with the king, look to see if the king has an iPad on his lap. And I said, why would he have an iPad on his lap? And he says, because he's got dementia and he can't follow along. Notice also that MBS has an iPad on his lap. Mm -hmm. So he's messaging his father, telling him what to ask and what to answer, because it's MBS who's running the country, not King Salman. Right, right. It's also sort of funny that it's like, you know, when you talk about our long relationship that's just business, uh, so, sort of ignore 9-11, which was obviously yeah, supported exactly. by Saudi. You know, it's like, it's exactly. just business. and and But also, you know, they will facilitate uh, terrorist attacks on the United States because uh, there's a little ideology there, too, I guess. You're absolutely right. See, this is something that it was convenient for us to overlook, mm-hmm. the fact that 3,000 Americans were killed on on one single day. It was convenient for us to overlook because of the depth of this business relationship. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, it's it's changing because in other times of, of economic strain where gas prices were high in, in the early and mid-2000s, for example, we could have the president call the Saudis and say, look, we really need for you to increase oil production, and they would do it. Mm-hmm. And now they've already told us 
they're at maximum capacity that they can't do it. Mm-hmm. I have no idea if that's true, mm-hmm. but that's what they're telling us that they can't do it. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? If if India has been buying more Russian oil lately because it's cheaper and China has been buying more Russian oil, then it stands to reason that would free up capacity or free up uh, availability or supply that the United States can then step in and buy Mm -hmm. and gas prices should go down. But that's not what the Saudis are telling us. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, I I know that you cannot predict what's going to come out of this Gulf Cooperation Council Plus meeting tomorrow. Uh, But I wonder what is what what other predictions are sort of floating around what we're going to get from it. Because Bloomberg this morning uh, had a story out saying that Biden was going to leave the Middle East this week with no announcements on increasing oil supply. Any changes are going to be announced at the next OPEC plus meeting, which is going to happen next month. But U.S. officials are saying the trip will yield an understanding on supply. So what what do you think? What is the expectation uh, of what will actually come out of this meeting? Yeah, that's another good question. So today at the press briefing, everybody was in agreement that there would be no announcements coming out of this, Mm -hmm. that um, if there was going to be an increase in oil production, that would have to wait, as you said, uh, for the the OPEC meeting. Um, What everybody really is looking for, though, is some indication coming out of tomorrow's meeting that there is a chance to negotiate some sort of a regional security arrangement. So tomorrow's Mm -hmm. meeting is not going to be just Biden with the GCC. The GCC, Gulf Cooperation Council, is Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Bahrain, Qatar, Oman, and the United Arab Emirates. Mm -hmm. But they've also invited um, the the president of Egypt and the prime minister of Jordan. That's very unusual. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the idea is, or at least what, what people are speculating to here, is that it could take months or years to negotiate an actual regional defense agreement, but they could come out with a joint communique saying that all of the interested parties are looking forward to continuing talks that would lead to a regional security yeah, okay. agreement. Yeah, uh-huh. Because you've been pretty – you've been skeptical about this, right? Pardon me? You've been skeptical about this Middle East Air Defense Alliance, haven't you? I have been. I have been. You know, I think in the West, we underestimate how seriously the Saudis take their role as the custodian of the two holy mosques. Mm-hmm. That's the, the official title. And I think that most of the world's Muslims just would not want Saudi Arabia to be in any kind of an arrangement with Israel. Mm-hmm. None. Mm-hmm. And so there's going to be that political uh needle to thread, right? If this is ever, why do you, why do you think think Joe Biden is so interested in it? I guess it's just to sort of further, um, isolate Iran. I think it is. Mm -hmm. I think it's to further isolate Iran. And I think that Joe Biden is a true believer in Israel Mm -hmm. and in the U S relationship with Israel. You know, he made this comment about progressives being wrong, just plain wrong about, uh, about, Israel, Israel skepticism. Mm -hmm. And the truth is Joe Biden's just plain wrong about that issue. Mm -hmm. And so I think that Biden loves Israel. Uh, I think he loves the, the U S Israeli relationship. I think that he's serious about wanting to do anything to, to strengthen it. I mean, if he were at all skeptical, 
he would have moved the embassy back to Tel Aviv. Yeah. That was a unilateral move that, that Donald Trump did by moving it to Jerusalem. Yeah. And Biden's done nothing to move it back to Tel Aviv. Biden's done nothing to make it easier for the Palestinians to have a diplomatic relationship with the United States. Mm-hmm. Let me also ask so, you, you know, uh, we've been talking about, uh, you know, what what happens if Saudi Arabia doesn't give us what we want? What happens if, you know, they, they insult Joe Biden too gravely and we have to change our relationship? I wonder if, if you see uh, Saudi Arabia making any kind of preparations in terms of its uh, foreign relationships or foreign policy uh, to prepare for, for perhaps a, a, a real shift in its relationship with the U.S., which has been a, a major backer for such a long time. I do. I do. I think that's a very important issue that you raise. Uh, we we know that in the last couple of months, the, the Saudis have been in even, even closer talks with the Chinese about expanding their economic relationship. We know that they allowed the Chinese to purchase oil and pay for it in yuan instead of in dollars. Mm-hmm. Of course, the, the U.S. dollar is the international currency of petroleum transactions. Uh, so, yeah, I think I think Mohammed bin Salman is willing to, if not walk away, maybe step away from the U.S. relationship. Mm-hmm. And I think that uh, I think that China would be the the greatest beneficiary of that decision. Mm-hmm. I think Russia would be a close second if it hadn't invaded uh, uh, Ukraine. And so the Saudis are a little bit stuck right now. Mm -hmm. But I think the Saudis would be very interested in a closer relationship with Russia Um, post-war. I'm I'm also interested in in watching over the next six or 12 months what's happening between Saudi Arabia and India. Mm -hmm. You know, historically, over the last 200 years, they've had close, close relations. And there are a lot of Indians who came here in the 19th century and the early 20th century who became citizens of the Gulf countries. They don't do that anymore, but mm-hmm. they did it back then. And so, you know, India is close, geographically close to the Arabian Peninsula. They've got very deep economic ties. And I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if a lot of Saudi oil ends up going to India rather than to Western Europe and the United States. We also have this new I2U2 format that Joe Biden, I guess, launched while he was in Israel that brings Israel, uh, the United States, India and the UAE together, which, you know, I honestly don't know what to make of, except you go, okay, well, seems like further efforts to isolate Iran, right? Because India and Iran still have a a pretty good relationship. Yeah, they have a decent relationship only because uh, the Pakistanis and the Iranians don't. Mm. Uh, it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, it's, it's the same thing in Afghanistan, or, or at least it was, uh, when, uh, when we overthrew the Taliban. Uh, that's when the Indians uh, improved relations with Afghanistan, only because the Karzai government was at odds with Pakistan. It's the same thing here. This just seems like an odd, this ITU2 thing, mm. just seems like an odd, almost ad hoc kind of... Uh, of attempt at an economic slash diplomatic uh, regional relationship. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm not sure I see anything coming of it only because from the Indian side, they don't have much to offer other than cheap labor. Mm-hmm. That's pretty well it. Yeah. I think yeah. it's just so the U S trying to, trying to keep some of these big countries sweet, trying to keep sweet with countries in bricks. You know what I mean? Like that's, that's the only thing I right. can guess is that may, maybe this is a little bit of uh, long-term thinking, but all of these formats are so loose 
you just think, what is even this just if I, <laughs> hey, listen, if I was running one of those countries, I would just think, great, another meeting, another pointless meeting that I have to go to. Yeah, another pointless meeting. I would agree. John, if we haven't missed anything big uh, in terms of what's going down in Saudi Arabia, I wanted to see if you want to talk a little domestic events and politics, uh, in particular, yeah, sure. the, the Joshua Schulte Always. verdict. We were hoping we were oh, hoping that would be yeah. that would be a hung. That would be a mistrial and he'd be off. But he's been found guilty uh, of causing the biggest theft of classified information in CIA history. What do you make of that? Yeah. Wow. I was surprised. And I, I spoke with Kevin Gastala about this um, just two hours after the verdict was uh, was read. And Kevin said that Schulte, when he was giving his closing arguments mm-hmm. uh, the previous Friday, he was so confident that he was going to win, so confident as to be almost arrogant in those closing arguments. And I asked Kevin Uh-oh. why he thought Schulte was so was so confident. And he said it was because the prosecution acknowledged that there was no direct evidence that Schulte had actually taken the information. But they said that Schulte was such a genius that the fact that there was no evidence of his guilt was evidence of his guilt, that he was able to cover it up. What? And yeah. And Schulte said in his closing arguments that that was so preposterous that there was no way the jury could find him guilty. And not only did they find him guilty, but they found him guilty on all counts. And remember, this trial didn't include the child pornography charges Mm -hmm. that they had been holding back. Now, I asked about the the child pornography charges, and I said, is it a setup? Or Because if it's not a setup, I'm going to have serious problems supporting this guy. Right. And it it turns out that what what it is is that Schulte is a is a lifelong libertarian and he doesn't believe that the government should regulate anything. He's like an anarchist. Mm-hmm. And so he started this uh, this uh, server kind of like a 4chan or 8chan kind of server where everybody was free to use it and to post literally anything they wanted. And of course, it instantly became a mecca for child pornographers. So he wasn't the one actually trafficking in the child pornography, but he was hosting the service that allowed others to post it. Which you have to know is, I mean, again, doesn't make him a a child abuser or anything, but like, you got to know that's what's going to happen immediately once you do that. Exactly right. Exactly right. So he faces... 10 years in prison for each one of the counts. I think there were nine of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, in most cases, those counts run concurrently. Uh, what they can do is have, I've seen this done in the past too, they'll have um, like four run concurrently and then another five run concurrently and then he does 20 instead of 10 mm-hmm. or 18 instead of 10. Uh, but then the child pornography charges are state charges. And usually, not always, but usually those will run consecutively to federal charges. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when I was in prison, I, I've mentioned that I was friends with the Italians. And and what happened to a couple of the Italian guys is after doing 10 years in federal prison and we had a big going away party for them because they're going home instead of their wives picking them up at the prison – a state trooper from some neighboring state picked them up at the prison and took them to state prison to do another 10 years. Mm-hmm. I could mm-hmm. see that happening in this case. 
Uh, let me ask you while we have a couple minutes about two other uh, topics. What do you want to talk about? You want to talk about Donald Trump or Joe Manchin? Quickly, let's talk about Manchin and uh-huh. how grossly disappointed we are in this guy. <laughs> yeah, go for it. I mean, no new spending on climate change. Predictable, I guess, right? From someone who is old and who has made his money in coal. But like, he's a Democrat. Democrats are trying to present themselves uh, as the serious ones on climate change. To have a member of your party going, I won't support any new spending on climate change is pretty wild. Crazy. When I read that, Michelle, I was just dumbfounded because what he's done in one fell swoop today is he's killed Joe Biden's legislative agenda for mm-hmm. the, the rest of the first term. Mm-hmm. If, if, and I'm assuming, you know, Joe Biden's going to run for reelection. But, um, yeah, assuming that the Republicans take the House, Biden's not going to be able to get anything uh, passed after January or, or from January onward. The only hope was that they could come to some agreement with Joe Manchin and um, – and, uh, you know, get something squeaked through the two houses of Congress so Biden could at least claim some sort of legislative victory, even mm-hmm. if it was just something moderate. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's just not going to happen now. And then what you know, what happens with this party? Right. The dragon dragging mansion around. I, I guess they I mean, up until now, they have decided that he is someone that they need. Um, but if you're going to have this member of your own party, you know, just driving the stake through uh, the agenda yeah. of your president, how long how long does Manchin, uh, you know, do people continue to play nicely with him? I, I have to I have to believe that Democrats are frustrated. Democrats in Congress are frustrated to the point of anger with with Joe Manchin mm-hmm. because he's handicapping them. Going into midterms, they're oh, yeah. not going to be able to say, look at all these wonderful legislative uh, uh, things that we had on our agenda that we were able to pass into law. Look what the Democratic Party can do for you. There's nothing. Mm-hmm. And it's because Joe Manchin or Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema uh, killed it for them. Yeah, yeah. The other news, uh, if if you can trust anything that comes out of Donald Trump's mouth, which I do not think you necessarily should, uh, but if you can take Donald Trump as a reliable source on anything, including himself, he is absolutely going to run for president in 2024. And the only thing up in the air is the timing. This is what he said to New York Magazine on the topic. And he kind of he tried to be coy. Um, But he did everything but say, yes, I am running. Uh, He did say the big decision is whether he goes before or after the midterms. Um, You know, Donald Trump's word means nothing. Right. He likes the attention he gets of being a maybe. Now he'll like the attention he gets from uh, maybe maybe messing up the midterms for for his party. But does this make you think any more that he might run? Yeah, I suppose so. You see, when I when I have been saying that I didn't think he would run, it's because I've been thinking like a logical human being. Right. And it just doesn't make sense to me that somebody who's lost the popular vote twice and is only polling 50 percent in his own party Mm -hmm. would risk losing again with an ego like his. He's such a narcissist. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't believe that that he would take that risk. Mm -hmm. But. Like you say, he told New York Magazine that it's just a question of the timing. There was a great article in either Politico or The Hill several months ago saying that that 
every Republican who matters has been begging him not to announce his intentions until after the midterms. Right. Because this is going to be a real rallying cry for the Democrats. You know, they'll be able to say, look at what uh, Donald Trump did with the Supreme Court. Look what it's cost us. And now Donald Trump is going to run for president again. Mm -hmm. You have to come out and elect Democrats to the to the Senate elect Democrats to the House to pass a Democratic agenda and then vote Democrat in 2024. That's exactly what the Republicans don't need to happen. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I don't think Donald Trump cares about anybody but Donald Trump. I don't think he cares what the midterm elections uh, are, which way they're going to go. I don't think he cares what this means for the DeSantis campaign or anybody else's campaign. It's all about him. Yeah. I think following that logic, though, he also won't care if he changes his mind in two months or says, oh, yeah, no, but I didn't really say it. You guys all just inferred it or whatever. And of course, you know, for a normal person, it is possible that the death of Ivana Trump might uh, cause him to reconsider. Uh, But, you know, I thought the same thing. I thought the same thing. I felt very bad about that. I've never been an Ivana Trump uh, uh, fan. But uh, it appears that she fell down the steps and hit her head, which oh. is how my dad died. So oh. I'm kind of sensitive to that kind of thing. Yeah, um, she uh, she was found at the bottom of a of a staircase in her townhouse in New York, and um, it's actually the it's something like the sixth leading cause of death for people in her age group. It's it's kind of common. People lose their footing, their their balance, and they fall and hit their heads. And you know he's. He's getting on in years too. He's got to be thinking about his own mortality. Maybe he ought to, rather than run for president, enjoy his grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll see about that. That that would be a sight. Donald Trump enjoying his uh, his grandchildren. That was John Kiriakou, my co-host on this show, uh, reporting from Saudi Arabia. Thanks a lot, John. Thank you, Michelle. Best of luck. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about the end of Joe Biden's visit to Israel and Palestine. Stay tuned. We're on uh, Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and we are, as promised, talking uh, about what Joe Biden's last day in Israel and the Palestinian territories held. We are joined now from Israel and those territories by Wyatt Reed. He's a Sputnik News correspondent. Wyatt, thanks for joining us again. Absolutely, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Um, So today was the meeting between Joe Biden and Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, I know that even yesterday before the meeting, uh, there were there were huge protests or large protests uh, about Joe Biden coming, about the length of time of of that meeting. Uh, I wonder what kind of uh, demonstrations you saw today. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the demonstrations today are mainly focused in Bethlehem, where he held that meeting with the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas, although we do actually, I believe, have a clip mm-hmm. from uh, my interview yesterday with uh, Mustafa Baghouti, who is the head of the Palestinian National Initiative, uh, who is helping organize some of the protests in Ramallah. Uh, I think we can we can play that, though, whenever uh, you guys are ready. 
Sure. Do Palestinians even want for uh, Mahmoud Abbas to meet with Biden? No, the vast majority here, and I think I speak on behalf of the people here, want the president not to meet with them. Uh, we think that it is insulting to give three days for Israel and 40 minutes for Palestinians, and it is absolutely insulting uh, to Palestinians to try to marginalize our issue in this manner. Mr. Biden loves Israel. His whole policy is dictated by Israel. So let him meet the Israelis. Why should we meet with him so that he would use that as a cover for his efforts to liquidate our rights? Can you discuss the so-called Abraham Accords? Is there a sense of betrayal among uh, Palestinian people uh, regarding the decision by Saudis to attempt to normalize relations with the Israeli regime? Yes, there is a sense of disappointment and that uh, the normalization, according to Abraham records, is done specifically to marginalize Palestine and at the expense of the Palestinian people. But we are against these agreements not only because of that, because we care about the people of Saudi Arabia and the Gulf countries. And we think that Israel is trying to dominate these countries through what they call intelligence and security cooperation. And uh, they are trying to push these countries to war with other countries like Iran, which at the end of the day will destroy these countries and weaken Iran. And that is exactly what Israel wants. Interesting. I mean, getting into not just the relationship between Israel and uh, its Palestinian population and the Palestinian territories, but also, yeah, this this uh, very deliberate and long term attempt to isolate Iran by by any means uh, necessary or any means possible. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this this obviously comes on the the heel. You know, now we have seen that uh, Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas uh, declined to listen to other Palestinian leaders who were calling on him not to meet with him. That includes, you know, not just the Palestinian National Initiative Party, but others like the PFLP and uh, like Hamas, mm-hmm. who uh, referred to this, uh, you know, this meeting as basically uh, a meeting with what with what he called a, a partner in the aggression on our people, referring to the United States. Mm-hmm. Um they basically, and then and, and the spokesman said that he thought it was strange that Abbas would extend his hand for peace with the occupation. Mm-hmm. So I think this is this is a pretty uh, common sentiment in terms of how Palestinians feel uh, about that decision. And obviously, when when it regards the the Iran peace, right? Uh, it's hard not to see the normalization as as anything other than kind of an anti-Iran coalition. Uh, Iran was a big theme uh, throughout uh, President Biden's remarks and comments with with the Israeli officials. Uh, They described this as kind of an existential threat. Biden promised uh, to do really whatever it takes, even up to and including military action to Mm -hmm. prevent Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. And all of this kind of sends a signal that they are looking for new partners in this anti-Iran coalition, uh, and the Gulf states would be chief among them. But as uh, Barghouti pointed out, uh, you know the, the real danger there wouldn't be necessarily to the regime so much as it would be simply to the everyday average working people mm-hmm. who, uh, in basically all Arab and uh, Muslim and, and Arab-speaking countries— uh, that you know that that attitude does not in any way reflect the majority 
uh, of the population. You know, pe- people, everyday people throughout the Muslim world overwhelmingly support Palestine and, mm-hmm. and not Israel. Yeah. And I mean, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned this. It, 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 it's a political choice to meet only with Abbas and to set up Abbas as somehow representing all Palestinians, right? Representing the Palestinian cause when he very much does not, right? And is a very uh, sort of controversial figure even within uh, within Palestine. Yeah, which is, you know, sort of expanding on, on what you were saying there. I wanted to ask also, uh, you know, in addition to hearing Mahmoud Abbas promote the idea of a two-state solution along the 1967 borders, which is an idea that seems, you know, pretty dead. Uh, and even Joe Biden kind of acknowledged that by saying uh, the the ground is not ripe at this moment to restart negotiations. Uh, the White House did announce another $100 million for hospitals, uh, subject to congressional approval. Uh, so a little asterisk there. And uh, it announced another $200 million for the UN body that supports Palestinian refugees. I feel like this really sends the message that we will help patch you up. We will help you after you've been displaced, but we are not going to do anything to prevent these processes from continuing. And so I wonder what the reaction has been uh, to, you know, the, the little bit of aid that the U.S. has announced. Right. Yeah. So Abbas, you know, it's important to note Abbas is uh, terribly unpopular. The latest polls show that close to 80 percent of Palestinians want for him to step down. There have not been elections in uh, in Palestine in over a year since uh, his party, Fatah, unilaterally decided to postpone them after polls showed them being crushed uh, by Hamas. Uh, they they cited an Israeli decision to shut down uh, East Jerusalem from voting that the Israelis themselves uh, would not confirm that they had done. Uh, so it's you know pretty apparent to Palestinian population to political observers that it was a fairly naked political move to uh, at self preservation on the part of uh, Abbas and and his. Uh, his co-workers, his colleagues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it, it is important to note that, you know, Abbas does not speak for the Palestinian people in any meaningful sense. If an election was held tomorrow, he would not be uh, the president of the Palestinian Authority anymore. It would likely become Hamas. Mm-hmm. Um, so now you kind of find yourself in a situation, um, and this is something that uh, was confirmed to me by a... a, a a woman who was set to run uh, for a congressional seat, uh, for parliament, I should say, uh, on behalf of the Hamas party that I spoke with yesterday, that uh, the reason that they uh, are not refusing, or they are continuing to refuse to hold elections, that that is the Palestinian Authority, is that they are simply scared of losing. Um, That's the perception, certainly among the opposition parties and generally among the Palestinian population, at least those that I've spoken to. Mm -hmm. And I mean, the other context for this for this visit is that the the Biden administration doesn't even seem interested into going back to the sort of pre-Trump status quo. Right. Abbas was pushing for the U.S. to at least reopen the consulate in Jerusalem to Palestinians to reopen the PLO mission in Washington. And so I feel like that's got to be 
crucial context for any understanding of, of you know, what Joe Biden showing up and sort of mumbling about how, like, we really feel it when Palestinians are hurting and reading some poem about wait, waiting for the wave of justice to arrive. Uh, you know, he's not even willing to take these sort of administrative steps to undo some of the damage of the Trump administration. Uh, and so I wonder, I wonder if there's any disappointment uh, among Palestinians as to what has come out of this White House or if they knew who Joe Biden was and, and have known for some time? Right. I don't think many people were terribly surprised that Biden offered basically no concessions whatsoever. The, the He offered to restore a couple hundred million dollars in funding that had been cut under the Trump administration. And that, I think, is largely seen as an effort to uh, basically reduce political instability so as to prevent uh, the rise, the further rise, I should say, of more militant opposition parties, including Hamas. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't think that this was seen as, as any big shock to normal people. They, Biden uh, said uh, what he was expected to say. He has long been an ally of Israel and has been extremely proud of that and is uh, said so on many occasions, including here in recent days. So, yeah, certainly no uh, no real surprise that this is uh, kind of the attitude. We had the flowery sort of language, the, mm -hmm. the poetry, uh, the nods to human rights, to dignity. That was a word he kept using, to dignity. Ugh. But uh, when it comes to things of substance, uh, they're few and far between. Uh, and we see really the attempt to portray this normalization scheme as somehow uh, an, a, rather than an impediment to a peace process, which is widely understood by Palestinians and really anybody who understands diplomacy or international relations, uh, he's painting this as sort of a necessary stepping stone to a peace process, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, normalization, uh, uh, the actual uh, quote, I believe, is that um, in this moment when Israel is improving relations with neighbors throughout the region, we can harness that same momentum to reinvigorate the peace process between the Palestinian people and the Israelis. It's uh, absurd. That's not how leverage works. That's not how pressure works. The Palestinian case for peace does not become stronger when its main allies uh, basically begin to normalize relations with its main enemy. Uh, that's that's a, a, an absurd fiction. And, and frankly, uh, you know, it, it should be more shocking uh, than it is that that more people in the mainstream haven't picked up on this kind of absurd sort of hypocritic, uh, uh, hypocritical remark. Right. Wyatt, we've got like two minutes left, but I do want to slide in this other topic and get a quick comment from you. Uh, you had U.S. Southcom commander uh, General Laura Richardson speaking at the Concordia Americas Conference in Miami this week. And I think uh, sending chills down some spines by talking simultaneously about the resource riches of South American countries, about Chinese and Russian investment in the region and about her conclusion that these two countries are involving themselves in South America not to trade for those resources, but to undermine democracy. And so anytime you have an American leader say, you know, lithium, minerals, democracy, media, elections, I think we should maybe take some notice. And so I wonder, in, you know, just a, a quick thought from you on how significant South America is going to be in our Cold War with China and in our fight to uh, maintain dollar hegemony. 
Right. Well, when we talk about South America, we have to talk about the Monroe Doctrine, which uh, has has been in effect for hundreds of years. Uh, basically, states that no uh, outside power is allowed to meddle in the affairs of the entire continent. Um, basically, kind of laying out Central and South America as the United States' backyard. That's where you get that kind of insulting expression from in the mm-hmm. first place. Uh, and this is really hearkening back to that. Uh, we had, yes, General Laura Richardson explaining why uh, she believes U.S. military forces, quote, have to continue to stay engaged south of the border. Uh, and she references the lithium triangle, mm-hmm. right? She referenced R- uh, RT and Sputnik Mundo, mm-hmm. um, which are, you know, they've been kind of delegitimized in the United States and and. They've managed, you know, they being the U.S. government, the mainstream media, they've kind of managed to uh, to to turn us into, you know, some less than legitimate outlet in the public opinion. Mm -hmm. That's not the case in South America. Uh, RT is basically the number one news source uh, uh, for a lot of people on YouTube before it was removed. It was one of the top 10 uh, news sources in the Mm -hmm. world. So. You know, this is a, a major battleground as far as the United States is concerned. Although, you know, from hey, the uh, Russian or Chinese perspective, I don't think they see it that same way. Perfect, Wyatt. Thank you so much. We got to let you go now. That was Wyatt Reed, Sputnik, a uh, foreign correspondent. He's in Israel. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back. Still live in D.C., still on Radio Sputnik. Political Misfits on Radio Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and we have a lot coming up in this next hour. Uh, We are hoping to get a perspective from Iran on the events sort of uh, taking place or the the things that are being planned around them. Uh, As we have noted, there's been quite a lot said about Iran over the last couple of days and quite a lot of moves made with Iran in mind. Uh, Not seeing a whole lot in the American media uh, from Iran itself. And so I am hoping in just a couple of minutes we will be able to talk about uh, what Tehran thinks uh, of everything that is going on. We are also going to talk about the big report on Uber that was facilitated by a huge data leak from one of its lobbyists. Uh, And I am hoping we can also get into a little bit later uh, some talk about the, the scrutiny on Turkey's drone industry and why the U.S. is very concerned about Turkish drones proliferating in the world uh, when there are so many of ours uh, cruising around out there. But before we get to that, uh, I did want to talk about this. There's a deep look at the housing crisis in the United States in the New York Times yesterday. Uh, It was talking about how what was once considered a a coastal big city issue is now affecting uh, cities and towns around the country. And places that once had housing surpluses have very quickly turned into places with shortages. The story in the Times notes that Freddie Mac estimated that the nation was short 3.8 million housing units in 2020 if it wanted to keep up with household formation. Cannot imagine that that number has done anything but grow in the past couple of years. Uh, And up for growth, 
which is a D.C.-based policy and research group that focuses on housing shortage, says the deficit doubled from 2012 to 2019. So we have twice as many, twi- twice as big a shortage as we did uh, just 10 years ago. And this wasn't just in coastal cities. From 2012 to 2019, supply worsened in 47 states and the District in Columbia. So that that is everybody. Uh, this is, again, according to this Up for Growth report. In three quarters of 310 metropolitan areas the study looked at nationwide, supply was dwindling or shortages were growing worse heading into the pandemic. And so while, you know, there are some urban areas that have seen some flight during the pandemic and during lockdowns, and there's been a tiny bit of a a population shift driven by remote work, it is not going to be enough to make housing adequate in any of these cities. And in fact, it just seems to be kind of accelerating the metastasization of the housing crisis. I was not sure I was going to be able to say those two words together and not trip over my tongue. So hooray for me. And so home prices are soaring, right? Uh, maybe they have started to level off, but certainly they are going to level off at a at a level that is out of reach of a lot of regular working people. And I will include myself in that group. Rents are through the roof. Uh, and, and so you have inflation causing everyone's paychecks to be functionally smaller. We have a political process at the national level that seems to be only able to talk about this problem and not to do anything about it. And at the local level, you have mayors and city councils dancing to the tune of big developers who, you know, as a rule, want to cater to these elite earners who can still afford to live near where they work and who are not that interested in, in trying to provide enough housing for everyone if that doesn't make them as much money as doing the former. And in the meantime, as we have discussed on this show before, we have the likes of BlackRock and other huge investment firms realizing, I think, that, hey, we've got no competition in this market, right? People can't afford to buy these houses even where they do exist, but we can. And then we can force people to just rent forever. And as we've talked about before on the show, you know, American people are being softened up for that and and told that renting affords us freedom, right? The the freedom to always wonder what the cost of your housing is going to be next month or next year, to wonder if you're going to be thrown out of it. We're going to have the freedom of living in a tent, but not on city land, because that's going to be a felony in more and more places if trends continue. And I mean, you know, I would like to buy a house. It seems really nice, and it seems absolutely impossible. The United States can be a very cruel country, and if you do anything outside the norm, you had better be prepared to fend for yourself for the rest of your life. And this doesn't mean that I advocate uh, for living any kind of life that you don't want to, right? I still think you've only got one. You might as well live the kind of life you want and have the kind of adventures you want. But for anybody out there who thinks that the United States, you know, is is the land of outlaws, right? And the land of scrappy adventurers, uh, try, you know, try to be single and own a dog. Right. Or try not paying into Social Security uh, for, for any amount of time and then also imagining ever being able to not work. Right. If you step off this track for a second, you better win the lottery if you want to get back into normal life in in any way. And so. This is about as personal as I want to get on this radio show. But, you know, I, I think that is the reality. Right. And and people have to start thinking about, you know, when we we're sold this idea that the 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 
the great thing America does is provide us all this freedom to live any kind of life you want. I just think that I just think that is not true. And I think if you take a look around at what people have to do in order to just barely make it and be comfortable at all, it requires an incredible amount of conformity, right? And isn't this the thing that we are always uh, decrying in, in other countries? You know, this l- l- lack of freedom, a lack of, uh, of, of political choice, a lack of uh, any other kind of choice, a lack of choice of potato chips. Uh, I think a lack of choice uh, when it comes to what kind of job you want to do or whether you ever want to take any time off trumps the rest of those. I want to ask our engineers if we have our next guest yet. All right, still working on Iran. I also uh, wanted to note that like clockwork, Texas yesterday asked a federal court to block the Biden administration's requirement that physicians and hospitals provide abortions in medical emergencies. This is Texas attorney Ken Paxton, who filed a lawsuit in the U.S. District Court for the Northern District of Texas. This is the guy who is, of course, uh, salivating uh, about going after, uh, for example, uh, Lawrence v. Texas. Uh, the privacy decision that allowed allowed same-sex couples to have sex with each other. Uh, so, of course, it was going to come from him. This lawsuit comes three days after uh, Health and Human Services Secretary Javier Becerra sent out a guidance saying uh, hospitals and physicians are required— to provide abortions in medical emergencies uh, where the treatment is necessary to protect the life of a pregnant person. Uh, Becerra said, hospitals and physicians who refuse to comply could have their Medicare provider agreements terminated and face penalties. Uh, Paxton is saying, we are not allowed to do that. That would be illegal uh, and that these hospitals should instead abide by state law. So we'll see. I mean, Texas is, of course, always, uh, you know, the the front runner when it comes to suing the federal government over policies that it doesn't like. Uh, it's a bunch of lawsuits about immigration right now. I believe it's Texas that is um, spearheading this DACA lawsuit uh, that is sitting in court at the moment. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see what Pen- Ken Paxton is able to do uh, with this one. I don't know if we'll be on a, a speedier time frame than for any other ones. I think we are going to take a, a quick break here on Political Misfits and, and come back with some of our other stories. So stay tuned. We're live in D.C. We're on Radio Sputnik. We will be right back. Sputnik, where we bring you news, politics, and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte. I wanted to take a minute and get into this big story about Uber or these multiple stories about Uber. Former Uber lobbyist Mark McGann provided a trove of files to The Guardian, which farmed them out to other media organizations to comb through. And as The Washington Post puts it, the documents reveal how the ride-hailing company aggressively entered cities around the world while frequently challenging the reach of existing laws and regulations. We are joined now by Gerald Olivier. He's a French-American journalist. He's the former editor-in-chief of Spectacle du Monde, and he's now an editor, writer at Atlantico, and a communicator and media consultant. Uh, Gerald, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. 
So uh, what I wonder is, on one hand, I, it is great to see this expose of of Uber and to sort of see its its tricks and um, tactics laid bare. I also think that we have been watching these very tactics uh, in the United States for for a decade now, right? I mean, uh, Uber has been fighting and winning against existing laws and regulations since its inception. And so on one hand, again, I I welcome a a detailed look into how this happens, uh, but headlines like Uber risked driver well-being as it rushed to expand in South Africa uh, is not a surprise, right? And, And so I wonder if you can uh, can talk to us about, I guess, to start off, whether this investigation has shown us anything really new about Uber and what you think the most important takeaways from it are. Uh, as, you know, seen from France, I, I wouldn't say that it has shown anything new about Uber. It was confirmed what we already knew, which mm-hmm. is what you just described. However, it's shown another side of Emmanuel Macron, which is what people are paying attention here. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the thing is, people are calling it a, a, a state scandal, which I don't necessarily think it is. It just reveals how government work sometimes and how some people in government work sometimes. The, the question people have been discussing in France here is the fact that between 2014 and 2016, when Emmanuel Macron, who is currently the president of the republic, at the time he was simply an economic minister mm-hmm. working for President Hollande, who was a socialist. And as a, uh, an economic minister, uh, Macron's own mission was to further uh, deregulations of the French uh, labor sector in order to be able to bring down French unemployment, which is chronically high. Mm-hmm. And uh, Uber came along and give him a chance to do that uh, with the taxi sector. Mm-hmm. And you have to know that Parisian taxis are a completely closed network. Uh, uh, the government has been trying to reform the taxi sector for almost or over 50 years, if you look at different reports dating back to the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And so here came this company that was offering open deregulation by having anyone become a taxi driver, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And obviously, that was breaking French rules. And so it met with instant government opposition. And at that time, Uber decided to go to Macron, but kind of secretly. And Macron kept the secret and had a a series, over a dozen meetings with uh, Uber uh, executives, in which he offered to further their cause with government and with parliament, uh, even though they were already breaking French labor laws. Mm. But he was happy they were breaking them because he wanted them down anyway. Mm-hmm. What created a problem was with other socialists when they found out what was going on. However, that may displease a bunch of people, but there was nothing illegal on either side. What mm-hmm. was kind of... Uh, strange and and unacceptable from a simply uh, ethical point of view was that Macron kept those uh, meetings secret. Mm -hmm. They were not on his official agenda, but they actually took place. Mm -hmm. And obviously, he didn't tell anyone that he didn't need to tell about those meetings, but he he did the job of opening and uh, deregulation. And and, uh, Uber didn't get everything they wanted. 
but now we have Uber uh, in Paris, and the the uh, let's say the, the the private car VTC, we they call it in French, you know, private car with with a driver mm-hmm. uh, is 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 available besides just getting a regular taxi. Mm-hmm. Let me ask, you know, what what was in it for Macron other than uh, furthering, I guess, an ideological agenda, right? Because he's a political creature. I mean, may, maybe you will tell me that he is just deeply, deeply committed to this sort of neoliberal idea of, of, of deregulation and really believes and wants France to be a, a startup nation. Uh, but I wonder if, you know, was there anything for him personally there? Was this just sort of a way to soften, soften the country up uh, for or the the political program and economic program that he wanted to present. So so far, nothing has been revealed as connected to these deal. I mean, no money, no favors, nothing like that. Mm-hmm. It was just a political victory for him to be able to uh, open up that uh, uh, economic sector. Uh, it was a way to uh, make himself look good by mm-hmm. achieving something, getting results. And maybe the, the best political prize was uh, he, he got a chance to break away from the Socialist Party mm-hmm. and he's destroyed that party since then and run for president uh, and win. So mm-hmm. maybe that was just the right step in his own uh, uh, political career. But uh, obviously, if there was, you know, what what American might have called that sometime a quid pro quo, mm-hmm. if you got anything besides political victory, then that would become a scandal because that would that would be totally unacceptable. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe that will be revealed, you know, uh, revealed down the road. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 the ICIJ is talking about over 120,000 documents. I don't know if the press have had time to come through all of them yet. Right. Uh, and maybe we're just looking at the tip of the iceberg. And it, it might be the, the you know, the, the summer series that every once in a while something else gets revealed and, and hits the headlines again. Mm-hmm. So far, nothing of the sort has come out. Mm-hmm. I mean, I wonder also about the response that Macron is getting for, you know, his his response to this has been to say, I did my job. Uh, you know, it's it's not bad right. to meet business heads and saying, you know, I'm proud of it. If they have created a job in France, I'm very proud of that. I do it again tomorrow and the day after tomorrow. And so I wanted to ask, you know, what kind of jobs has Uber created in France? And do you think some of the people who are working in those jobs are, are going to be glad that Macron paved the way for them to do this kind of work? Because working for Uber in the United States is not is not a cakewalk. No. And I mean, your question is, is, is a complex and difficult question because it involves many, many uh, aspects. The, the, you see, France uh, has always been very proud of its very strict labor laws, mm-hmm. protecting the worker, ensuring a decent income, having the state come in uh, through through taxation and other means to ensure that people who have lower type jobs can make a decent living. That's always been the, the great French uh, political and, and, and social credo, especially those of the socialists. Now, Uber comes in and just like an elephant in, in a China shop, just breaks all the rules and breaks down all those barriers. Mm-hmm. And it's very surprising that it got the support of, of anyone the way they were doing things. Uh, nobody wants an Uber job, mm-hmm. uh, but you see them multiplying all over the place because mm-hmm. uh, we're talking about taxis, but the biggest service right now in Paris is something called Uber Eats. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm sure they're all over the place as well, where people can order food. To, to, to take away and some some guy on a bicycle will come and deliver the the, 
um, that meal or whatever else um, to their door. Mm -hmm. And you get paid below minimum wage. And it's obviously not the kind of uh, a job you would have for a career. You might see it. You might see it as a starter job. Uh, for people who uh, study during the day and want to make a little income at night and you end up working 18-hour days, I, I have no idea. Mm. All I see is that in France, Uber is feeding um, the massive wave of illegal immigration because all the guys who have those jobs are here probably without regular papers mm -hmm. and are working in very unregulated market. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I wonder, you know, how successful has Emmanuel Macron's sort of uh, push to Uberize France been, right? He, 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 these advocating for, you know, deregulation and for having this sort of startup, you know, move fast, break things ideology. Uh, it didn't seem to serve him all that well in the last election. And so I wonder, you know, I, I wonder how much of an impact uh, this vision of his has had so far and whether we are starting to see some backlash to it. Well, we did in the election, and, and, and not only in the election, but in the election for, for, for parliament. Mm -hmm. It's the catch-22 thing. And, and you have to admit that France is a very difficult society to reform. Mm -hmm. uh, if you look at our history, uh, uh, we postponed reform until there was a revolution, mm -hmm. and that revolution turned out to be a pretty, pretty bloody uh, uh, e event that, that took that took years. Um, in the 20th century, many presidents uh, seems to go, uh, you know, post-World War II, France has always been the, the, the last car uh, on the train, the last one mm -hmm. to actually admit that change is sometimes necessary. So Macron is facing uh, um, intrinsic cultural obstacles in some ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's never easy to change the way the French are used to doing business. Mm -hmm. um, but still, he, is, he hasn't given up. Uh, he hasn't given up. And uh, uh, it seems he seems that uh, having been re-elected, and even though he doesn't have a majority in parliament, uh, he's not listening to the people, then he's keeping on with his reforms. He mm -hmm. just, uh, yesterday was uh, Bastille Day, which is national holiday in France, and he gave an interview on TV. And was asked about what he was going to do in his, you know, brand brand new starting second term, mm -hmm. uh, even though he had been barely reelected and didn't have a majority. And he said, "We're going to continue on our on our track. Mm -hmm. Nothing changes. We have to, we we're we're moving on ahead." And he's talking about uh, um, another one of those unemployment uh, compensation reform that's going to be very hard to push down the throat of the French because they're very proud of their protection, mm -hmm. uh, even though it seems to be one of the reasons why unemployment is always so high. Macron is not listening. Whether it's a quality or a problem, is not listening. Is moving on ahead as if nothing was uh, uh, happening on either side, trying to slow him down. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, he, he suffered his first defeat in Parliament just, what, two days ago, uh, after the, a sort of coalition came together to reject giving the government powers to demand travelers show proof of vaccination or a negative COVID test when they enter the country. And so, you know, I wonder how long he can continue not listening if it's going to result in actual defeats in the legislature. Yeah, and uh, to, to show you that he's not listening is that he's pushing the text now in front of the Senate, mm -hmm. hoping that the Senate will pass the text and then it can come back to Parliament and then Parliament will vote in a different way. Um, that 
is is decided that it was he was going to navigate the political climate on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have an absolute majority, and so some of his texts are going to get support, and some simply are not. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, that that vaccine pass, uh, it may have been the wrong text to 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 present first mm-hmm. because the french have been very tired of the vaccine pass uh, the french are up to their fourth shot of this vaccination and it was pretty much a a, a precluded outcome that a vote to prolong the vaccine pass was going to be defeated he went ahead with it it's not the most important text of his legislature obviously mm-hmm. But it's a very symbolic one, and it shows that in case of necessity, the opposition can unite against him, which is major because, you know, that text was defeated by a a coalition that includes the extreme left and the extreme right Mm -hmm. with the center Republicans in, in the middle. And that's a pretty strange coalition. So he's decided to ignore that opposition. Uh, is going to be pushing on ahead. And like I said, that text now is in front of the Senate to see what the Senate is going to do. If the Senate rejects it, which is a possibility, that would become a major defeat. And that probably would affect the rest of his term and probably would drive him sooner or later to dissolve the assembly and call for new elections. Mm-hmm. I have to wonder, you know... <laughs> To sort of take a, a, a philosophical view uh, of this investigation and of, of this relationship, you know, the, what is being written about Uber it sort of implies that uh, Uber is doing something novel, right? But I think if you take away the sort of technological bells and whistles, it doesn't seem particularly novel to use wealth to crush competitors or to entrap and exploit workers or to try to skirt regulations to make money or to reach out to powerful politicians. Politicians, uh, for their support as you try and do these things. And so, you know, perhaps what's novel about Uber is how long the company was willing to not make any money in order to do this. But, you know, it doesn't seem to me to be outside the norm for American capitalism and American entrepreneurship, right? And so I wonder if, you know, how... What does it say about politicians who are so eager for companies like Uber to come in and shape the futures of their countries? You know, I mean, it might seem like sort of a small affair. Okay, Macron had meetings with Uber that weren't known about before. But does it say something larger? Should the French people be sort of reflecting on uh, the larger implications of the fact that this is the kind of company he wants you to work for? You know what I mean? This is the this is the way uh, he wants business to be done, particularly, as you say, in a, in a country like France, where where protections for people uh, are are pretty robust. Right. And that's that's actually part of why uh, those those, uh, articles coming from the Guardians have had such an immediate uh, impact, Mm -hmm. is to have seen someone who began as a socialist, because he he was once part of the Socialist Party, Mm -hmm. now he has his own. But to have someone uh, who claimed to have been a socialist at some point kind of opened the door for the wolf to, 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 to come in, in the house, the wolf being Uber. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you have to understand the French always look with a very careful eye at anything coming from, from, from the U.S. The U.S. to them is uh, jungle capitalism. And Uber was the paroxysm of that jungle capitalism. So it has shocked a lot of people that someone who once claimed to be a 
socialist would let this happen. Mm -hmm. It has shocked other people that someone who was a politician, who was trained in, in the best school, who knows the law, who knows regulations, would indeed entertain conversations and negotiations with a company that was openly breaking every single liberal law in France. Mm -hmm. That's another shocking uh, shocking truth. Uh, but the most shock are the people who see the result of it, especially the people on the left, the so-called La France Insoumise leftist party, mm -hmm. uh, untamed uh, as, as, as they are called, uh, because they see the future in Uber. Mm -hmm. And they see a future with, where what they have built over a past century is going to be destroyed in, in, in the blink of an eye mm -hmm. uh, because Uber is not the only company acting the Uber way. Mm -hmm. uh, we are facing all kinds of, um, what, how shall I mention it, um, under the table kind of new labor market. Mm -hmm. There is a, a, an un ruled economy underneath the real economy, which is slowly gaining ground. And obviously, it's taking away a lot of uh, people's securities and the so-called French social safety net that the country has been so proud of. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the, the gig economy, right? And when you talk about letting the wolf in the door, you know, other aspects of this reporting uh, showed that, you know, I mean, Uber is now being sued by hundreds of women over uh, alleged sexual assaults. Uh, when uh, the headline about them putting their drivers in danger in South Africa uh, includes, you know, deciding against the wishes of drivers to to uh, allow cash payments, which means you have these people driving around with huge amounts of cash and just being, you know, completely um, negligent when it comes to uh, caring for their drivers or their workers. We have seen them in, in the United States pour a ton of money into thwarting efforts by states to, to force them to treat their drivers as employees. So I, I wonder if there was anything else in this, uh, this reporting on, on Uber that you wanted to highlight. We have the very same thing in France. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are hundreds, I don't know if there's lawsuits, but there have been hundreds of complaints uh, by uh, customers using Uber, especially women. Uh, uh, and it's not just sexual assault. Uh, it takes on sometimes uh, other uh, aspects because, mm -hmm. uh, as you know, we have a fairly important uh, Muslim uh, minority, uh, especially ar around Paris. And some of them are very strict about rules. Mm -hmm. And uh, there have been stories of uh, drivers complaining about women not being properly dressed in their car, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. which goes beyond simply the, you know, the dealing with a company like Uber, but goes on with breaking rules so much that you create other problems within the society that may have uh, much larger implications. Mm -hmm. uh, however, You've mentioned in the, the gig economy, the uh, new unregulated economy, uh, the, the low-cost world, and the ever-desire for bringing apparently comparable services at a lower cost brings society to the kind of Uber situation where we are now. Mm -hmm. So um, it doesn't make anyone be feel too optimistic about the, about the future. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That was Gerald Olivier. He's a French-American journalist. He's a writer at Atlantico. Uh, do you want to tell our listeners where they can find your most recent work? Yeah, I also have a blog, which I call France-America, since I, <laughs> I'm, I'm always in between the two countries. Uh, France-Amérique is, is my blog. It's in French, unfortunately. 
And I also uh, am a research fellow at the uh, Institut Prospective and Sécurité in Europe, if people look it up on the internet. Thank you so much. IPSE are the French initials. Thank you. There we go. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm sure we'll talk again soon. We're going to take a quick break here on Political Misfits and come right back to talk about drones. We're Political Misfits. We're on Radio Sputnik. We're live in D.C. and we'll be right back. politics and culture without the red and blue treatment. My name is Michelle Witte, and I want to talk about all the reporting we are seeing on Turkish drones. ProPublica has a big story out this week about how Turkey is changing the face of modern warfare with its TB2 drone, uh, which seems a little bit rich for the U.S. to be blaming Turkey for changing modern warfare with drones. Uh, But it says... As Turkey's drones spread around the world, U.S. lawmakers want to crack down, saying Turkey is exploiting its NATO status to get key parts from Western manufacturers. And really, every word of that sentence is a new level of pot calling kettle black. Joining us to talk about Turkey's drones, our drones, and what they are doing to modern warfare is Nick Modern. He's a reporter, researcher, writer, and political organizer, and he coordinates the websites bankillerdrones.org and nodrones.com, which are devoted to education and organizing to stop drone warfare. Uh, Nick, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. It's a story that has really been covered properly, so I'm glad you're having a look at it. Oh, thanks. Well, we do our best. Um, I, I want to just give a quick example from this ProPublica story. It starts with Turkey meeting with the president of Ethiopia and, you know, it insinuates that he is selling him drones to use in his war against the TPLF, because in the U.S. story of that conflict, uh, the TPLF are the good guys and the Ethiopian government to the bad guys. And the U.S. has decided this is a conflict its allies shouldn't profit from, you know, uh, one of the few. Uh, but I want to stop there and, and just ask, from a technological standpoint, are these TB2s really a game changer, and why are they so significant? Well, I think that, it's, you know, as you're suggesting, it's overselling to, to say that in all cases, in all wars, uh, this particular drone made by mm-hmm. Turkey is a, is a game changer. I think it's significant because what Turkey's been able to do is to produce a relatively inexpensive smaller version of the Reaper drone that the United States has been using, uh, you know, as a, as a drone war uh, slaughter work, workhorse for, uh, you know, more than a decade. And so what Turkey has enabled, uh, you know, smaller governments to do is to have a, a way of basically uh, repressing uh, dissident groups in their in their country. In some cases, you might say defending mm-hmm. it, itself, but um, it, it's really uh, you know a uh, you know a, a Kia instead of a Mercedes right. Benz, um, and, and do, doing essentially the same thing. But in all wars, it is not a game changer. The smaller wars that are mentioned in this article, um, you could say, yes, it it did provide a a winning edge. In a war like the war in Ukraine, 
it's not really clear. We're, we're, we're getting a lot of information out of this war that is totally made up mm-hmm. on, both, on both sides. Um, these drones are being used uh, by the Ukrainians. Uh, however, um, mm-hmm. it's not turning the tide by any means because Russia is fighting a, a, a different type of war. Russia has a strong air defense system. They have much more capability of, of jamming uh, drone uh, guidance systems, uh, communications. Um, so uh, it's, these drones are not preventing Russia from doing the type of warfare that it does, which is largely based on heavy uh, artillery, heavy air attack, uh, mechanized forces, and basically just throwing troops at an objective until it's, it's overwhelmed. And, and in that way, uh, these, these drones and probably any drones um, are not going to be game changers in the way that they might have been in this case with Ethiopia, which incidentally has not solved the problems of Ethiopia. It's just killed more people and right. kicked the can down the road. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to I want to come back to the role of drones in, in the war in Ukraine, but I, I want to talk about this sort of criticism of Turkey, um, you know, exemplified by statements from uh, Senator Robert Menendez or Representative Robert Menendez uh, saying that Turkey's drone sales are dangerous, destabilizing. They're a threat to peace and human rights. You've said, you know, the, these drones are going to smaller governments and it's enabling them to um, uh, repress dissidents and control their populations. And so I guess my question is, you know, are there curbs on American drone sales that Turkey doesn't abide by, right? Is it is it really accurate to suggest that Turkey's role in the drone market is more dangerous and destabilizing than the role of the United States or China or any other country that is manufacturing either surveillance or, um, or uh, lethal drones? Well, the answer is basically Turkey is doing exactly what the United States, uh, Israel— uh, China, you know, are are basically making money off of uh, mm-hmm. drone killing, uh, and this these, these huffings and puffings, you know, by uh, you know Senator Menendez, which is so mm-hmm. hypocritical um, when they you know they talk about destabilization. Well, what that means is that there are groups. In, in, in various parts of the world that really don't want the United States to be involved there. And these are destabilizing forces. Um, so um, but technically speaking, uh, the, the Turks are going around the world buying the parts that they need and the technology and the expertise they need to make uh, a commercial product that happens to be uh, a TB, mm-hmm. TB2 and larger now they've got something called the Enkinchi, which is a two-motor drone that's capable of carrying almost a thousand-pound, you know, munitions payload. And these may soon appear in skies over Ukraine as well as other places too. And these these are more on the scale of what the United States can do with a with a Reaper drone. The payload, actually, um, if, if it were, you know, carried in a certain way, would be um, be possible to carry over, you know, these new B-16-12 
nuclear bombs, too. So uh, these are, uh, you know, basically uh, remote control aircraft being produced for profit by companies that have, have that capability. And so there's, there's no nothing immoral, quote unquote, that the Turks are doing mm-hmm. or illegal, quote unquote, that they're doing that, that these other other countries aren't, including the U.S., mm-hmm. aren't doing that too. I think that the concerns in Congress probably have more to do with not wanting uh, the Turks to, to compete with U.S. companies uh, in, in this uh, rapidly growing field of, of uh, re- repression and, and warfare. The drones do make it easier to, to start a war. Right. That's one reason we've been saying ban weaponized drones. Very interesting in this article, um, we have this, this uh I believe he's a former general, Michael Nagata, from who was the head of Special Operations Command in dealing with Syria, who says that it's too late to stop weaponized, weaponizing drones, but we have to create more friction, quote-unquote, to prevent them from spe- spreading mm-hmm. so quickly. But ideally, what he's saying is we would impose an international ban on weaponizing drones in the same way that we've tried to do that mm-hmm. with nuclear weapons, because they are so, mm-hmm. so dangerous. Let me ask you, uh, to return to Ukraine, you've said that Turkey's TB2 drones are not, you know, going to, to make a particular difference in that war. But are there, are there other drones that, that carry the possibility of, you know, further destabilizing that conflict? Because I think that's the one that the people are looking at that could have very serious conflict uh, consequences, right, if, uh, if a line gets pushed too far. Yeah. Yeah, well, right now, it, uh, there are reports that uh, on at least two occasions, the Ukrainians have sent uh, an old, can you say an old, I mean, it looks like a modern-day mm-hmm. rocket ship, but old uh, Soviet-era surveillance drones that they, you know, were left in their country with the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, one is called a TU-143. Um they, it was a surveillance drone. It appears that they have put munitions in it and uh, flown inside Russia to attack Russian air bases that are attacking, you know, and where air, aircraft are going back and attacking mm-hmm. in Ukraine. And then they have used TB2 to uh, attack at least once inside Russia uh, at either a munitions factory or an oil oil depot. I can't remember because there have been two of the, two mm-hmm. of those type of uh, attacks. And the, the U.S. have promised, um, and I'm not sure the Congress has approved of it, but I can't imagine that they won't approve, is wanting to send in uh, something called Gray Eagle drones that are almost as big mm-hmm. as Reaper drones and, and carry, uh, you know, eight um, Hellfire missiles, which can do a, really a lot of damage depending mm-hmm. on the target. And so there is this uh, actually an increase in Ukraine ta- using drones to attack inside of Russia. And it's very hard to know what that will what that will bring right. about. If if the if the Ukraine uses Gray Eagle drones to start assassinating people, uh, you know generals or, or, or anybody in Russia uh, with Hellfire missiles, if they if, if if 
say, and the U.S. probably, once they have Ukrainians have their hands on these, they're probably not going to be able to control that. It sets up a situation of a kind of retaliation that we haven't experienced so far and that Ukrainians haven't experienced. So this is an extreme, dangerous, dangerous thing to be using these kind of weapons at all and especially mm-hmm. in this war. Yeah, and so maybe uh, there's uh, countries other than Turkey, Turkey that deserve some scrutiny over our drone program. Nick Modern, I, I wish we had more time with you. We've run up against a little bit of a time crunch, but I know we will uh, get back to you very soon. That was reporter, researcher, and writer Nick Modern. You can find more of his work at the websites bankillerdrones.org and the website nodrones.com. That's the K-N-O-W drones.com. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. I think... We are going to do a really quick turn here and uh, bring on our final guest to get some perspective from uh, Iran uh, about what has been going down with Joe Biden's big trip to the Middle East. We're joined right now by Mohammed Morandi. He's a political analyst and professor at the University of Tehran. Mohammed, thanks for joining us. So there has been so much talk about Iran over the last couple of days. Uh, very little uh, to Iran from what I can see. Uh, and I want to start with Joe Biden, you know, uh, reassuring Israel that reentering a nuclear deal with Iran uh, won't make Israel less safe. He's been stressing the U.S.'s great desire to return to a deal, which is confusing to me because it seems like negotiations stalled some time ago and that the U.S. refusal to remove the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps from the terrorist organization list is is one very big stumbling block. Again, a listing that had nothing to do with the original nuclear deal. And so I want to start by asking you how Iran perceives this this U.S. insistence that we really, really want a, a nuclear deal. Well, first of all, um, the issue of the guards being a on the U.S. FTO, the foreign terrorist organization list, uh, was not an issue that for Iran would be considered a precondition, the removal of the guard from that list in order to have a deal. Mm-hmm. So that is a myth that was created largely by the United States government and a myth that was repeated by think tanks as well as by Western mm-hmm. media. Uh, for Iran... The key issue for a deal is for the United States to give assurances that if it joins the deal, the deal will be fully implemented. And that if it leaves the deal again, yeah. there will be uh, repercussions, that there will it will come at a cost for the United States. Because mm-hmm. under Obama, Iran had a very bad experience that from day one, The United States began violating the deal, and Iran doesn't want that repeated. Mm. And under Trump, we saw the United States tore up the deal. And again, the United States didn't pay a price within the context of the deal itself, and Iran doesn't want to see that happen again. Mm -hmm. So Iran, which in the past implemented the deal in full, is willing to do so again. But this time around, it doesn't want to be cheated. Mm-hmm. It wants the Americans to abide by their mm-hmm. commitments. And the very fact that the Americans keep raising the issue of the guards 
is itself, in my opinion, a sign that the United States is not sincere at the negotiating table because the issue of the Gaza is not the key issue for the Iranians. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you how the the way Joe Biden has uh, referred to Iran, if that has any impact on negotiations, right? Because, of course, I know, you know, U.S. presidents have used insulting language to talk about uh, other leaders. But, you know, you have uh, the U.S. president saying the only thing worse than Iran now is an Iran with nuclear weapons, which is a pretty demeaning way to refer to a country that you are supposed to be negotiating with. And so I wonder if this if this affects uh, the negotiations that take place or if everyone involved can sort of ignore the hot air and and focus on actually, uh, you know, looking at the details in front of them? Well, remember, this is the same Biden that took credit for the crime bill in the United States, Mm -hmm. which ultimately led to millions of African-Americans being put into jail and for crimes, for for unviolent crimes. He's not exactly uh, the most... uh, a uh, credible person when it's when when you know he's spoken about uh, African Americans in the past in demeaning language. His wife just rings to me mm-hmm. the nonsense that she said about tacos and so on. It's mm-hmm. th- this is not a, a a family or an administration that behaves normally or rationally towards its own minor the minorities in the United States. So in Iran, we have no expectations for them to treat our people or our country as equals. Biden was a part of the Obama administration when the maximum pressure sanctions were first put in place. Remember, Trump was not the person to impose maximum pressure sanctions. He reimposed maximum pressure sanctions. The maximum pressure sanctions were first devised by the Obama administration, and those sanctions were meant to target ordinary Iranians. They were meant to make ordinary Iranians suffer. So when the likes of Biden want to have Iranians die as a result of shortage of medicine, when Biden wants Iranians to lose their jobs, families to be broken, people to be unable unable to buy food and meat, uh, you shouldn't expect Biden to, you know, use appropriate language when it comes to uh, right. the, the Iranian government. Right. He's, he's, he's effectively been trying to harm Iranians as much as possible. So we have zero expectations from, from such a person. For Iran, mm-hmm. the important thing is not what sort of language Biden uses uh, and, you know, whether he's racist or not. It's what he signs at the negotiating table what sort of mm-hmm. uh, assurances he gives at the negotiating table. And that is what Iran will work with. Let me also ask about, uh, you know, what kind of discussions are underway in Iran as things like an air defense alliance between Israel and some Arab nations, uh, you know, is proposed, or even this new I2U2 venture that seems to be just another format for for meetings, but would bring India into conversations with the U.S. and uh, Israel and the UAE. Uh, You know, this air defense alliance seems like something that is still a very, very long way off, but I I wonder how Iran response to it and how threatening it perceives any of these moves? The United States has been trying to help the Saudis block Yemeni missiles and drones, and they failed. And there's nothing that Israel mm-hmm. has to offer that the Americans don't have. The, the existence of Israel 
is due to U.S. support and Western support. Whatever technology Israel has, it's because the Americans help them obtain it. They subsidize the country. Mm -hmm. The United States is the country that, in the Western world at least, that is uh, most advanced when it comes to weapons. That it has the, you know, which has the largest, the largest military. So, when the United States is unable to block Yemeni drones or Yemeni missiles then obviously the Israelis are not going to be able to stop Iranian drones or Iranian missiles, which are infinitely uh, more developed and infinitely much larger in number. So I mm -hmm. think this is, uh, I mean, the Americans right now, they, they, have, they have their hands full in Ukraine. And they're in no position mm -hmm. to really increase pressure on Iran. So for me, th mm -hmm. this whole trip is more about convincing the Saudis to export more oil. But I don't even know if the Saudis have more oil to export. Mm -hmm. And the, the very mm -hmm. fact that Mohammed bin Salman treats Biden with such disrespect, I think is, is not a sign of Mohammed bin Salman's strength. Because we saw how he mm -hmm. sat obediently alongside, uh, beside Trump when Trump was showing the, the weapon systems that they sold to the United States. It shows how weak the U.S. administration under Biden and in general the United States has become because of, uh, because of mm -hmm. the two decades of wars, because of crony capitalism, because of the, the way in which the United States responded to the 2008 and 2009 crisis and the, 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 the economic policies that led to the 2008 and 2009 yeah. economic policy. So the United States isn't the United States of 30, 40 years ago. I want to squeeze in one more question. We are running out of time here, but I do want to ask, you know, as you say, Joe Biden is willing to go, you know, make his way sort of obsequiously to Saudi Arabia to ask for more oil to be pumped. Uh, they've been making overtures to Venezuela. Why, why do you think the U.S. has not been willing to accelerate a, a new deal, if only in the interest of getting more Iranian oil on the market? There's a former British intelligence officer, a senior intelligence officer that I used to meet at conferences. And he, when I would make these, you know, say about, speak about how the United States, the, the approach of the United States towards Iran harms U.S. interests, he would often tell me mm -hmm. that he would say to him, Mohammed, you have to keep in mind, you think that in our, gov in our governments make their decisions based on rationality, but it is very emotional. And there is a deep hatred towards Iran, both because of Israel and also because the United States never forgave Iran for the revolution itself. There's a there's a hatred and contempt for Iran that is really irrational in the United States. So where they can deal more rationally with uh, Venezuela and where they know that their interest is at the moment to uh, ease tensions with Iran and to behave more reasonably towards Iran, the United States can't do it. And that is because... The elites in Washington, the bubble, those who live in this bubble, they 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 can't uh, they can't change that easily. So, uh, what you say makes sense, and I think that when you speak to you, when, if you spoke to many of these policymakers in Washington, they would understand that what you say is makes sense. But it's 
it just won't happen. Yeah, I mean, I, that's the only explanation I can come up with because it does seem really inexplicable, right, to continue to sort of uh, cr- try to create more tensions with regard to Iran while going hat in hands to these other countries. Uh, that was Mohammed Morandi. He's a political analyst whose opinion we value very much. He's a professor of English literature and Orientalism at the University of Tehran. I wish we had more time with you, but we will have to speak to you again soon, Mohammed. Thanks so much for joining us. And that is where we are going to have to leave it here on Political Misfits on this Friday. I want to say thanks uh, to Mohamed Morandi and all of our guests. Thanks, of course, to the engineers and producers who make the show possible. And uh, on behalf of all of these engineers and the John Kiriaka, who is absent but will be back next week, thanks to you for listening. We will see you on Monday. Bye.